Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. This verse is the one our priest in Dallas always used before his sermon. Somehow in his mouth it sounded righteous, as if he were putting the onus on God for what he was about to say. If it's pleasing to God, then you'd better listen up, you sinners. My Texan would cringe next to me and brace himself for what was to come. He'd already formed an opinion in his head. Needless to say, this verse is not one of my cowboy's favorites. When we came to England, the first sermon we heard at our parish church, St. George's, was opened in the same way, and I looked over at my cowboy, and he was smiling. Somehow it sounded different coming from a woman. Plus, she was beaming and obviously rejoicing in the utter privilege of being a priest and standing in the pulpit to deliver a sermon. In her mouth, the words said, Oh, I hope I've got it right, and if I haven't, I know you'll forgive me because I prepared with a sincere and loving heart. The standalone verse is an offering of our words to God. I'm sure I'd need to consider my words and perhaps even change them if I wanted all of them to be pleasing in my Lord's sight. Walking around London, especially at suburbs where there are lots of mummies with their young, in shops, restaurants and stopped on narrow pavements to gossip and yell at their children, I cringe when I hear them. I think those words can't possibly be pleasing to God. Well, the words could be, but not the way they're delivered. I'm not a judge, though. What makes the words pleasing to God in his sight? The truth? The sincerity? Perhaps the truth isn't what we want to hear, but then perhaps when the words are pleasing to God, they're challenging to us. This is what being a Christian is about. Pleasing God, not man. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. My name is Vivian McNenny, and I'm going to be bringing you homeschool insights and delights from our household where God dwells in every nook and cranny, at least we try to remember that, especially when travelling back home to America to arrive slap-bang into the reality of no longer having our family home to retreat to. Each week I cajole and tempt a member of the public to join me for part of the show. I'd ply them with cakes and coffee, honestly, if it weren't all things digital. But they come and chat with me with no bribes, and we talk about aspects of family life, which usually relates to homeschooling, but always speaks straight to the hearts of parents who place the responsibility of child-rearing above their highest joy. This week, I'm bringing you a conversation I had in the summer with a fellow Brit, Theodora Sutcliffe, who's traveling the world with her son and schooling him on the way in some unusual places. I'll be going on about the number of times I've said goodbye, packing and throwing stuff away, and finding lightweight suitcases. I'm sipping tea with the last of the chocolate biscuits this week, and I really do wish you could join me, but let's get going anyway, shall we? Packing up is always hard work, especially 
when all I can take with me to America is two suitcases and a bit of hand luggage. No shipping of anything this time, so rather like the times we didn't go to Galveston for our annual holiday and pile anything we wanted to in the van with no weight restrictions, I'm having to make decisions, some of them difficult. But I know I can't take pots and pans, cups or books, ornaments or utilities, so the packing gets a little easier. I tell you, looking for lightweight suitcases was a task and a half. The ones we used to have were light back in the old days of no restrictions, but when a case weighs 10 pounds empty, that's 10 pounds less I can put in it. So we searched for cases that weighed in at about 2 pounds. There were some that looked as though they'd collapse or rip with the 48 pounds packed inside them. There were others that had doubtful hardware. What's the use of a featherweight case that loses one of its wheels or the extension handle fails to release? Ideally, something made by a reputable company on sale would be good. We didn't want to have to fork over £200 for a case. Neither will be keen on spending only £45 on a set of three, which could spell disaster. After shopping and stopping at nearly every shady shop along any high street we found ourselves on, we would lift up various bags with various degrees of ease. We became experts at guessing empty weights. We found some brands that kept showing up, so we googled them in the hopes that we would find deals online, and we did, eventually. My Texan kept declaring he could live with his heavy-when-empty bags until I pointed out that if he had more weight space in his, it meant he could take a few extra things of mine. You know, a pot here, a pan there, or an ornament or two. So, here endeth the packing ordeal. Next came the decisions about where to place the stuff we couldn't take with us. Whole roomfuls of furniture that couldn't just be heaved into the rubbish bins at the flats. We had a charity come and tell us what they would and would not take. A further obstacle is we don't have a car, so transporting anything to a dump even is impossible. Next, what to do with all the rest of the stuff? I came up with a plan about a month ago to fill the wheelie basket with something every time I walked to the high street. I took the last of my parents' coats, books, china and other kitchen stuff. Then there were things like the plastic patio furniture that served its purpose but really needed to be thrown out and the additional outdoor pots containing plants, good plants I may add, that will come back year after year but the new owners didn't want them. Books were another stumbling block, especially those inscribed to my parents. I didn't want them but I couldn't throw them away. What homeschooler can? In the end, I put out, I pulled out the flyleaf and left them upstairs on the top floor library, here in the flats. Good solution. Next, I tackled the food in the fridge, in the freezer and the cupboards. For the last month, we were really good and designed meals around what we had left in the pantry, but there are always those last few frozen peas and the tea and the dregs of the Lyle's golden syrup in the bottom of the tin lurking in the far reaches of places where food is stored. I really hate throwing food away. I look at the bags of jars and tins and think, as my mother drilled into me, of all those starving children in Africa. Finally, the last clean around, the last dust, bathroom scour, vacuum, and then all the cleaning stuff gets slung. More waste, but we're almost done. I did what some people might find odd the other day, just for a change and to take a break, only because my friend upstairs told me that's what she does, so I thought, hey, I'll do that too, just for fun. 
I got on a random bus and let me take let it take me to its destination. Why not? There are several buses that pass through Beckenham. Well, not only do they pass through, they stop and pick people up, of course. The one I catch to Bromley goes to the station there, but on the way home it goes to Crystal Palace. So I stayed on it just to see what that lovely sanding place looks like. Not much, except for the large radio tower on top of the hill. It's a little closer to Victoria, but not as pretty as Beckenham. And really nothing special. The routes the buses take, for the most part, aren't scenic, as they have to service neighbourhoods. Another bus I hopped on goes to Elmer's End, which is in walking distance of my brother's house. It always makes me think of Elmo in Sesame Street, and the bus stops about ten minutes from his house, but you'd have to know the way, because his house is off the main road. That same bus, the number 54, takes me in the opposite direction to the hospital where my mum died, and then, when I stayed on it once, all the way out to Woolwich, which was getting a bit dodgy, judging by the types of people getting on the bus. I had to get off and stand in a queue for a bus to take me back home. Not a very safe situation. One of the buses through Beckenham goes to Chislehurst, which my Texan and I visited when we went to see the man-hewn chalk caves. It was getting a bit more countrified out there, so a little prettier. In London proper, the buses from Victoria go all over the place. Oxford Circus, Piccadilly, Leicester Square. Watching Oxford Street from the top of a double-decker is quite interesting. The crowds of people thronging the pavements in and out of the massive shops is astounding. It used to be busy when I was young, but now it's even busier. Walking along the pavement is next to impossible. I always seem to be going against the flow, and no one can window shop anymore. You get jostled along by the crush of busy, in a hurry people. Taking the bus is a slow process, too, although much more interesting than a train with its endlessness of black tunnels. The bus takes 45 minutes to do a three stop tube journey because of all the traffic. And I need to go on a break. But when I get back, my guest will be fellow Brit Theodora Sutcliffe, who describes herself as a nomad, meaning she and her 12-year-old son, Zach, live anywhere, everywhere and nowhere, and have done so for three years. They travel pretty much all the time after finishing their first year and realising that they couldn't possibly see the world in 12 short months. Luckily, Theodora is a writer, which is totally portable, and you can read what she writes about the apparent mundanicity of leading a life less ordinary at escapeartists.com. She sticks up photographs of fabulous, crazy, and just plain bizarre places the two of them have visited, and she rants about topics from politics to books, films to unschooling, and the journey through motherhood. So I'll be back with the interview Theodora and I did in the summer after these messages. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Mark Lipinski is coming to Toginet. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. A live two-hour show Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Creative Mojo. It's fun, entertaining, informative, inspirational, and illuminating. Lipinski has worked on such shows as Oprah, The View, The Joan Rivers Show, and Ricky Lake. He's busy, but he's got the drive to share with Creative Mojo, dedicated to the modern crafter and crafting lifestyle. 
Dive into the info and enjoy everything from celebs to entertainment news to recipes, quilting and needlework, knitting, painting, woodworking, Christmas crafts, and so much more. This show boldly encourages you to discover and harness your own creative spirit by living creatively every day. For more on Mark and the show, check out marklepinski.com. Don't miss the fun. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Levinsky. Wednesday afternoon, starting at 3, 2 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, Theodora, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon on my show, and um, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, British summer's just returned to form, which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, you know, I was really amazed at just how much English people do not like the heat. I heard nothing but complaints, and I'm just kind of thriving. We just we just complain about the weather. I mean, it's such a cliche. It's like the bad teeth cliche. Um, yeah. It is actually, you know, it's fairly true. Yeah. I mean, we, actively, we have bad teeth and we complain about the weather, whether it's hot, whether it's cold, whether it's raining. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, um, Theodora, when you first became a mum, did you imagine that you would be out traveling with your son full-time as you've been doing now for, what, three years? Did you imagine that your life would take that turn? No, I didn't. I mean, I first thought that I wanted to take a year away traveling with Zach when he was about two and a half. Um, but I'd never have thought that long-term, long-term travel would be possible or an option. And part of that is because of the general absence of the Internet. You know, I mean, if you're looking back 12 years, I mean, email wasn't standard. You know, um, the notion of Skype didn't exist. Google didn't exist yet. Um, Google started in 2001. Um, so the very idea that I could earn a living online, um, that I could get online in pretty much anywhere in the world and just work online, it's not a lifestyle that would really have been um, practicable no. um, 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, did you have a traveling family? I mean, did you travel a lot as a child? Um, quite a lot. I mean, my parents went overland to Afghanistan when they were 19 and 20, mm-hmm. respectively. Um, so they were always open to exotic travel. Um, but most of the traveling we did was sort of within Europe. Um, it was sort of Spain, Greece, mm-hmm. France, Italy. Um so we did. I mean, we'd, we'd travel quite a lot and we'd take long holidays. Um, but it, And, you know, we once um, went interrailing, actually, through Europe. Um, so we, we probably traveled more than the typical English family of that era. But, I mean, not, not immensely more. But you went to traditional school, probably. I did, yep. Yeah, and through university. Yep. Yeah, and... Um, so did you know anybody that was kind of educating their children in the way that you're now educating Zach? I mean, did you, were you influenced? What kind of brought all, all of this on, this, this traveling apart from the fact that now you realize that you can, you know, sort of do it from anywhere in the world, your, your job, your writing from anywhere in the world? Well, I mean, it's in terms of 
why the timing was right to do what I'd always wanted to do um, was that I just had a really, I'd had a hellish year. I wanted to take a year out and sort of fulfill this dream of doing a year's traveling and then sort of figure out what we do next when we got back. Um, and then it kind of became clear that um, we could live, we could live permanently um, pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, I could work pretty much anywhere in the world. And at the moment, Zach's getting a better education through travel than he would be within the conventional conventional English state system. Yeah, yeah. And how do you plan where to go? What was the first place you went to? The first place we went to was Thailand, mm-hmm. um, which was because we were traveling on a round-world ticket, and that's one of the places they put you into. And I wanted to start in Thailand because it's an easy easy but exotic destination, as yeah. it were. Yeah, so it's, it's comfortable to live there? Um, it seems comfortable. To, it's a comfortable place to spend time. Uh, I mean, it feels adventurous, but it's, you know, it's got a great tourism infrastructure, um, you know, lovely beaches. And as a way to start a long journey, just sitting on a Thai beach for a week or so, chilling out, is actually, for, for us, it was the right place to right place to start yeah yeah and when you arrive in these places have you already set up somewhere to stay or do you wait until you arrive and scout the place out how do you do that um typically um this is going to change over the next sort of um we're doing a short a short trip to various parts of europe and if you're doing europe in august you want to have things set up ahead of time normally um but typically what i'll do is um typically we just kind of arrive um, you've got lots of different methods of finding accommodation depending on where you are, how you're traveling, etc. Um, whether that's, you know, um, if you're taking a tourist bus, you'll be positively assailed with um, touts when you get off the tourist bus. Um, if you're in a, a big Chinese city, there will always be train station hotels. Um, but typically, if you're looking at finding a long-term base, um, and sometimes we travel where we and spend three days in a place, sometimes we'll settle down and put down roots for weeks or so, you always get a better deal looking for long-term accommodation when you're actually in the place and can pound the streets and ask around. Mm-hmm. So what do you do about language? I mean, if you arrive somewhere, does somebody always speak English? I know that's another one of those dreadful things that we, we presume everybody's going to speak English. Um. Let me see. Uh, I've needed to, uh, when we were in Mongolia, I needed to use a phrase book in Mongolian. Um, Zach and I speak Chinese. Well, we don't speak fluent Chinese, obviously, but we do speak um, speak, Chinese, uh, speak some Chinese. So in China, I've needed to use Chinese. Um, parts of Indonesia, r- uh, remote parts of Indonesia, I've needed to use Indonesian. But sign language Sign language goes a long way, um, and if you've got a guidebook, and I'd always recommend traveling with a guidebook, um, they'll also have a phrase book which will help you help you get through. Mm. Um, so have you ever kind of landed somewhere or arrived somewhere and gone, oh my gosh, this is not a good place to be, I need to get out of here, or, or is everywhere pretty kind of good? Uh, gosh, um what have I t- I really didn't like Darwin um, which was my first encounter with Australia um, not Zach's first encounter because his father's Australian and he's um, travelled there with him 
Um, I really didn't take to Darwin at all um, because it sort of felt expensive. There was um, a degree of overt racism that I've not come across anywhere outside South Africa. Um, But uh, normally, no, um, I'm trying to... Um, where would I not go again? Um, yeah, where, where, yeah, where would you not go again? Or where did you not feel safe? Have you ever felt unsafe somewhere? Um, I, Cairo, I don't really feel unsafe. Um, there was a lot of sexual harassment in um, Luxor and Cairo, um, which is, it's not helped. Um, it's not helped by being British because you get a lot of sort of older British women going to Luxor in particular for sex tourism. Um, so there was a lot of harassment there, which was, um, you know, unpleasant. It was a bit wearing. Um, but in terms of actually feeling in danger, um, no, I mean, I, f- I felt in danger when I was in my teens and I ended up in the wrong part of a wrong part of a South African town. Um, I felt in danger there. Um, but on this trip, no, no, not felt. Not yeah. felt yeah. So what's, what's one of your favorite places that you've been, you and Zach? Do you have, do you have separate favorite places? I bet you do. Uh, yeah, well, it's always a very difficult question, favourite places. I'm a huge fan of Indonesia because of its diversity. You've got um, 17,000 islands, over 700 languages. Um, you know, it stretches 3,500 miles across the equator. Um, you can go from one religion to another religion um, as you cross the islands. And it would be very, very hard to get bored of Indonesia. Um, I love China. Um, it's just endlessly fascinating that it's ancient civilization that's transforming itself into a superpower. Um, and once you get a little way, only a very little way off the tourist trail, you start to experience how incredibly friendly and hospitable, um, Chinese people are. Um, where else to, um, sorry. Yeah. So those are two favorites anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did something. You, you do things in these countries that I think, okay, so how do you in- uncover activities or places to go? Because some of them don't sound as though they're the typical touristy things that you're doing. Is it just people that you meet and, and you know, just circles that you, you are in? Yeah, I mean, people that you meet, um, meeting people, talking to people um, online, um, guidebooks, um, and for that matter, non-guidebooks, other sort of books about the, um, the area. Um, so, for example, you know, I read that there was prehistoric rock art on the Nile, so we wanted to find that. We were taking a look at Devon Nile anyway. Um, so, again, you can find a lot of information on sort of stuff from stuff from interesting tribal groupings through to archaeological stuff on specialist specialist websites on the internet um well and you have zach with you and i and i know that you're pretty conscious about the fact that um well traveling is an education in itself but i'm i'm sure you're you're a little bit influenced by the fact that let's find some great stuff that um zach will be really interested in is is that a direction that you go yes it is i mean we and it's also about sort of keeping things keeping things diverse um, 
because you get to a certain point, you know, when we were in the Middle East, um, you get to a certain point where you have just had enough of ruins. You know, with you get to a certain point where you've had enough temples. Thank you. Um, you know, it's so um, it's important to mix things up. How he sees what we're going to be doing in Europe for the next few weeks is largely he sees it as about food and art. Um, oh, okay. Okay. With um, so yeah, I mean, we just it's it's a mixture. But yes, I mean something like Egypt. It would be obviously. Um, there's a huge educational value um, and interest there in a classical sense. Um, what we were doing in China, the main point of our last visit to China was for Zach to be in Chinese school, um, you know, socialising with his Chinese peers, interacting in Chinese. Um, so there's definitely a sort of educational angle to much of what we do. And being together... 24-7, what's that like? Well, okay, we're not necessarily together 24-7 in <laughs> any case um, because in where we're places long-term, he'll have his own sort of sets of friends, his own circles of friends. Um, he's obviously old enough to be left if I want to go out to do something and he doesn't want to do that thing. Um so it's not as 24-7 and relentless as you might think. Okay. Um, uh, we manage to make space for each other and leave each other space. That sounds good. Um, it sound, that sounds survivable, doesn't it? You know, sort of um, mother-son together all the time might be a little bit uh, cloying. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's, it's not. And we're not always, I mean, again, we're not always sharing one room or sharing a tent or whatever that may be. All right. So how I I asked you about comfort and, you know, I imagine that I can rough it, but I really cannot rough it. Do you rough it or or what what are your living accommodations typically? Or do you Um, have typical? (laughs) We we don't really have typical. I mean, in uh, Mongolia, we were sleeping in a pup tent. Um, when we were, because we did a long horseback trip, and that's how you do it. You sleep in the girls where people want to put you up in girls and where there are girls, and otherwise you sort of camp um, in on Everest Base, on the Everest Base Camp Trail, which we did in Nepal. Um, you sleep in very small rooms in tea houses, and that's what you do. Um, and we're currently in quite a nice flat in Greenwich in London. Um, so. It varies. It varies very much. I mean, we're not on the... We don't go for the luxury end of accommodation um, when we're taking long-term rentals. I mean, in Egypt, for example, we had, actually, that was quite nice. We had a three-bedroom house, um, so I had an office, and we had our own big garden. Um, but we don't tend to go for the super luxury, expensive foreigner apartments, as it were. So, so what's the longest you've stayed in a place? That would have been Harbin um, in China earlier this year. We were in Harbin for four months. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you travelled around? Or you, did you just stay in the one place? You just stayed there in Harbin? Well, I mean, that we, the project was for Zach to be in school. Um, okay. So, you know, he was in a Chinese school. Um, he was learning Chinese. So during our first month there, which was still school holidays, and while we were arranging that, we did um, two long ski trips to the mountains in northern China. 
Um, but while he was in school, obviously, it's Chinese school hours are extremely long. Um, he was getting on his school bus at 6.30. Um, he wasn't getting back until 5.30. Um, and his hours were slightly shorter than a Chinese child's his own age. Um, and there's a lot of homework. So while we were doing that, we were basically exploring within the city. Well, um, Theodora, I have to go on a really short break, but after a few moments, we'll be back, and um, don't stray far. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Theodora, you said that you spent um, quite a lot of time in China and that you and Zach are you know, familiar with the language enough to be able to get around. And I know that you wrote about a ski trip that you took there and you did say some interesting things about the language. So first off, tell us about the ski trip. Tell us about skiing in China, because really that's not the first place I would think of to go skiing. <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's not a part of Chinese culture. Um, it's something that's very, very new and in very, very rapid development. Um, so you can actually see the transition as you go to these resorts. Um, 20 years ago, they were sports training grounds, and now they're building ski condos. Whether people are actually going to use them or not is another question. Um, <laughs> but it's um, as a <laughs> let me see. You've got you've got basically two types of resorts in China. Um, you've got um, very low ski fields, um, which are designed for people who cannot ski at all. And it's traditionally it's a day trip. You come up from the city. Um, you go to this tiny little hill, um, and you go in a large group, and then you basically you're towed, you're towed down slope by somebody who's a ski instructor, right. um, and that is what skiing is for China. Um, it's culturally, it's still considered very much a day trip or a weekend thing. Although now you will get some um, wealthy people who come up from Shanghai to places like um, Yabuli or Wanlong. Um, and spend a whole week, a whole, a whole week or so on it. Okay, so either it's a day trip, or people come and, and spend longer amounts of time, and you can either not ski, set up for people who cannot ski at all, or set up for people who are pretty good skiers. And so, 
you fell in the middle somewhere? We fell in the middle, yes, um, and that, that wasn't it wasn't necessarily ideal. Um, although it very much depends where you sort of pick your resort, um, and I mean climatically, obviously, you need to be lucky with the weather because one northern China should be brilliant for skiing because it's extremely cold. Um, that it isn't; it's actually quite arid, um, which means that you can have these horrible, horrible icy slopes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and you said the equipment was a little bit dicey. You know, <laughs> yes, I mean, as a government, I would not recommend going to a government-run government ski resort. In, right. um, all the equipment is all the equipment is slightly odd. Um, I mean, even at the expensive private club med resort, the longest skis available were one meter fifty-five. They had boots up to a European size, 45 or 46, but no, it's longer than um, 155. Um, the equipment at the government-run one was a non-matching skis, uh, boots with broken buckles. Um, you know, um, it was quite, um, quite bracing. Yeah, yeah. And, and the language, the Chinese language, if you don't I, – I mean – I would imagine that you, there's no way you can even guess what they're trying to say to you. Although you say that sign language works wonders, um, you, you said that that was a, that was a problem. Did, you know, you've never studied the European languages, but you could probably understand more Italian or more French than you could possibly imagine Chinese. <laughs> well, I studied Latin and Greek, and I did French at school, so um, European languages are not particularly difficult for me. Um, you've got recognisable cognates, you can hear everything, and also, you know, you've got a relatively good idea, even with English that isn't particularly phonetic, you've got a relatively good idea, looking at something written, how it's going to be pronounced. In Chinese, you've got none of those clues, um, and the sounds are very different. Um, say the single syllable ma um, can be pronounced in five separate ways to have five separate meanings. Yeah. And of course, as an English person, you don't hear those sounds. Right. Um, and you've, yeah, you've got close to zero cognates. Um, you've got the word car um, used for card, as in bank card or lift card. Um, and the word for 3G is sanji. Um, but beyond that, there's you. There's nothing that you can cling on to until you have enough vocabulary to start recognizing their own building blocks of their own words. Yeah, yeah. Right. So um, instead of reading <clears throat> books about the culture, you and Zach are lucky enough to get out there and actually meet people because you're not going to stick, obviously, with. English speakers and tourists, you want to get out there and, and meet the people. And in meeting people, I think that you learn more about the culture because you really learn about, about them and how they live their lives. So tell us something, one person or a couple of people that you have met that really piqued your interest. Oh, gosh. Um, so many people. Okay, well, there's Lima, who was a hunter-gatherer in... Um, in Halmahera, Indonesia, and we did a big trip into the jungle because I wanted Zach to see how nomadic hunter-gatherers live. There are not very many people living that lifestyle now. Um, and 
he was fascinating because he was so content with what to many people would seem very little. Um, and he would literally hunt a spot out and then move on. So for a couple of months, he'd move on to a new spot. He'd put his house back up. Um, and he had phenomenally few possessions. Um, and he was extremely happy with that way of life. Um, despite the fact that, um, you know, his wife had died in childbirth or rather after childbirth, um, because the only medicines he would use was the magic that he'd got from his father, which he kept in rattan bands that, um, encircled his waist. Um, so he was an interesting person to meet. Um, who else? Um, it was very interesting, actually. The time we were in Egypt was just after the, um, relatively soon after the Arab Spring in the run-up to the elections. Um, so it was very interesting to talk to, you know, educated, intelligent, interesting um, Islamists, people who hold views that would in the West be considered fairly extreme. Um and yet to be able to have sort of respectful, a respectful dialogue with these guys was, was incredible. Um, so. And, and do you get, do you, do you feel some of the politics in some of these countries that you're visiting? I mean, I'm sure Egypt must have had something going on, you know, under the surface because of all the trouble that's going on in that part of the world. Um. Well, gosh, I mean, the Middle East is Middle East is a maelstrom. I mean, it depends. One one interesting thing I found is that the countries where I found the nicest people, um, as in my God, these people are amazing. People here are lovely. Um, are tend to be the ones that have had really vicious and horrible civil wars. Um, so it's like Cambodia. Laos and Lebanon. On the one hand, you're going, my God, the Laos are so lovely. And yet they had their civil war with um, the US intervention. Cambodians um, seem like the loveliest, kindest people, but of course they had their year zero in Pol Pot. Um, and then the Lebanese made us incredibly welcome. Um, Lebanese of all persuasions. And it really isn't very long ago that... Um, there was a massive tribal civil war there. Um, so you can't tell, as it were, from um, how people superficially present um, what there is, sort of what tribal divisions there are running below the surface. Yeah. Well, and you just, you, you, people, I think, especially in America, they won't travel to countries because they're so frightened of what they read in the newspapers and the politics and, and what's going on with the governments. But when they, if they ever do travel or when people are brave enough to travel, you know, you just, you find that people are, as you say, you know, wonderful, friendly, have the same concerns for their families that we do, the same concerns for their country that we do, you know. So you just can't, can you? You can't judge what the people are going to be like by their governments and by their politics. No, you can't. Um, and one thing I'd say to, um, with regard to America in particular is that the advice your State Department gives is the most conservative out of all the 
English-speaking government travel advice. Yeah. You know, I'll say Egypt at the moment, what the British government is saying is just go to, there's a sort of resort strip in the Red Sea. So just go to the Red Sea resorts and the connections between those, and that's fine, and you might want to avoid the rest of the country. Whereas the U.S. has had a blanket travel ban on Egypt now for weeks, I think, um, if not months. That's right, that's um, right. Very protected. So there's, very protected. There's definitely a Well, yeah, I think there's a different perception of risk um, uh, at all levels. But yes, I mean, one of the things you learn, the most obvious thing that you learn from traveling the world is that people are people. They have the same feelings for their children. Um, you know, people can look extremely different, can lead extremely different lifestyles, but um, overwhelmingly they will make you welcome as a guest. Um, there's very strong cultures of hospitality in many places that are lacking in um, Anglo cultures now. Um, Well, and Zach has said that he wants to settle down by the time he's 30, okay, which is what, a year? Um, It's less than that, actually. Less than than a year now. And you've decided on a country where you want to settle or he wants to settle. So tell us a little bit about that and how you feel about that. Yeah, well, we're currently actually looking at extending for one more year um, to see do a long trip through Latin America um, and also to learn some Spanish. Um, So it may not actually be when he's 13 or it may be at the end of his 13th year rather than the beginning of it. Um, But where we've decided on is Bali because it's just lovely. Um, It's the perfect blend of um, interesting and beautiful and colourful and warm and friendly local culture with the sort of things that you like to have as an expat, um, you know, it's good to have international restaurants, for example. Um, it's good to have um, decent clothes shops. Um, and it's good also to have a low cost of living. Um, and there are good international schools there as well. Um, now, and you, we can go you diving. Say, we can go diving, which is just fantastic. So. And you like doing that. Do you take photographs? Yes, you do oh. take photos. You're a photographer, aren't you? Well, I do take photos, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm not really, I've, <laughs> I've been paid for a photo precisely once. Actually, no, I've been paid for photos a couple of times, but I'm primarily a writer rather than a photographer. Yeah, yeah. So you said that Zach was in school in China and that was one of your primary goals when you went to um, Harbin was to um, put Zach in school so that he could experience Chinese school. So had he gone to school, did he go to school in Bali as well? Uh, yes, yeah. he did. Yeah. And so how did that, how was that different? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, the school he went to in Bali, it was a little elementary school um, with beautiful little place in the rice paddies, international school with um, some Balinese and Indonesian children as well. Um, so sort of yoga and guitars and um, a general kind of Balinese hippie lifestyle, barefoot outside. Um, so that was a delightful little school. And um, when he went to in China, of course, he's middle school age now. So it's a Chinese middle school, um, roughly 3,000 kids. Um, all of them Chinese bar Zach and um, one Korean, um, Korean boy um, on an enormous out-of-town campus. Um, routine of school buses, um, uniform, um, 
a lot of rote learning in particular as it applies to languages, um, maths that's on a level that we in the UK don't cover till A level. Mm-hmm. And this is year one middle school in China. I'm then doing stuff like absolute value, for example, which we do not have to do in the UK. Um, so, I mean, about as opposite as you could be. And also, I mean, when he started school in um, Harbin, it was probably minus 20 centigrade. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Bali is tropical and rarely, rarely drops below 20 above. Yeah. So, utterly different. Well, Theodore, it sounds like you're doing a fabulous job with um, Zach's education. And also, I know that different to America, because a lot of the travelers that I've spoken to homeschool their children are American, you have to be um, accountable for Zach's education back here in England, don't you? You have to actually, you know, sort of send them proof that you're, he's learning something. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very relaxed thing, to be honest. I mean, I've just sort of sent over the odd bits, the odd bits and pieces that Zach's doing, and he's like, well, clearly he's fine, he's well ahead of where he needs to be at his age group, so I've got very little um, government government intervention. That's um, good, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you enjoy that? You, you're enjoying not having that, um, the, the, the tie of a traditional school and um, a base... And a settle. I mean, are you ready to settle down? Um, I think, like I say, I'd like to have another year doing um, Latin America. Um, And I don't know. Um, Am I ready to settle down? Um, Probably not. Um, But I do appreciate that, you know, uh, I, I know in the US, homeschooled children do go to some universities, usually not the top universities. Um, in the UK, if Zach's looking at a UK university, and particularly given his bent to science, he will need to be in a good school to achieve that. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. there's a lot of stuff written about sort of homeschool children going to top universities, but it's. Um, I think you, particularly for a child with a scientific bent, it would be hard to replicate, let's say, a physics lab or a chemistry lab at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a point at which you just go, okay, this, this can't actually be done. Kitchen science can take you so far. Kitchen science, I'm sure, can take you a reasonable distance, particularly if you're strong on science. Um, and, of course, the life sciences are easy to do. But at a certain point, you actually need the kind of kit and the expertise that science teachers have. Yeah. I agree with that. And we did, um, in America with my children, I did um, co-op. And then they went to community college, which is a way to do their first two years of the four-year degree. Um, you know, reason, while they were still at home and um, reasonably inexpensively. So that's the route we took. So, And it is not open here in England to do that. And I know that he'll probably have to Take his A levels or GSCEs, as they're called now, aren't they? Are they called that for A levels? Oh God! Um, they're ch- I think we're about to change our A level system. Oh. Um, he would probably be taking an IB anyway because that's more yeah. more of an international education that's got yeah. more recognised than A levels. But you've got basically at the moment we have GCSEs, which are the exams at sixteen, and then. Um, combinations of AS levels, A levels, or you can go through the international IB, international baccalaureate program, yeah. 60 to 18. Yeah. But it's a lot more scattered than um, the US system. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, Theodora, we've come to the end of our time, and I've been having a fantastic chat with Theodora Sutcliffe. She talked about her life with her son, Zach, and how they are traveling together slowly around the world, learning and having adventures and meeting people along the way. So thank you so much for joining me this week, and I wish you good speed on the rest of your year. I hope you enjoy your Latin American tour. And please, everybody out there, all of my listeners, go visit Theodora. Um, She has a fantastic blog where she writes wonderful, wonderful travel blogs um, at escapeartists.com, and I will have it linked on my radio show page. So you have a safe, safe weekend and rest of the week, Theodora. And you too. Thank you so much for lovely conversation. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Oh, I loved that interview. She's quite a character and her skiing story was so interesting. Fancy going to school for four months in China and being the only non-Chinese student except for one Asian and having to work in a completely different language. It's quite remarkable what some homeschoolers are doing, isn't it? My southern gentleman and I were having a cup of tea in the lounge one evening when he said, I think this must be very difficult for you now, after having your parents part of your life for so long that you for so long you can't remember when they weren't in it, and now with the flat here sold, you're facing a finality that's been hovering in the background for the last three years, this ending of an era must be bringing up some emotions that may be making you feel unsure of how to leave it all behind. I found these words to be very sensitive and pretty much spot on, and I was able to relax and know that he knew exactly what I was going through and would be standing there right next to me, kissing me on my neck whenever he could snatch the opportunity. He's such a love bucket. And he's right, this is the end of an era, and for now it's a final goodbye, but not the final goodbye. I'm prepared to pursue more of my dreams once the dust has settled, to model what growing old gracefully and with fire looks like so that my children will have a healthy view of the winter years in a world that writes anyone over 50 off. My mother's mother spent the last 20 years of her life saying, if I'm still here next year, and she wasn't a defeatist, she wasn't making any plans, just in case. 
In turn, my parents settled into a quiet retirement by the seaside that revolved around themselves, their dog, and their bridge, and cautioning me not to put all my eggs into one basket in case my enterprise failed, and to save like crazy for my retirement, the ultimate what-if. They were careful, they were afraid, and they were insular. In contrast, my aunts and uncles volunteered at Age Concern, went dancing, took trips to France to pick up inexpensive wine, and enjoyed their extended family to the hilt. I want to take risks and have fun doing it. I want to pour myself into my hobbies and have my own business, or travel a lot, or just go where the wind blows me. I want choices and the courage to continue branching out and taking the roads less travelled, whatever that ends up looking like. Above all, I will continue exercising flexibility because there is nothing worse to my mind than being stuck in a rut. And of course, flexibility comes in different shapes and sizes, as simple as changing my perception of an ideal, or embracing caregiving, settling down near the home fires, or opening a retreat centre. I want to take college classes to learn new things, be involved in more theatre, help in my community, and as so many of my young unschooling guests say, be the change in my life. I can sit and pray about my life and do nothing, or I can get up and do something. Another guest said to me, there's never a right or a wrong time to embark on a new journey. You're never too young or too old to start afresh or experience another aspect of life. I may not be able to accomplish something physically new, like rock climbing, but I can sponsor a team... There are creative ways to fulfill a passion or a dream. I want my children to look forward to their later years with enthusiasm, not fear. I want to bust another stereotype, the one that old people are worthless just because they're a little slower on their feet or can't see or hear so well, have grey or white hair or stooping backs. doesn't mean they don't have a wealth of knowledge that can be tapped into freely. All that history, wisdom, experience walking around us. And I've had a lifetime of endings, fond and welcome goodbyes, to give me lots of points of reference for the feelings I'm having today. My first memory of a goodbye that was particularly painful for me was when I turned six. I came down the stairs looking pretty in my party dress and said to my parents, I don't want to be six. I'm happy being five. I want to stay five. And I had to girl up and be six, of course, but I've had those feelings over particular ages several more times since then. And the feeling of loss is always the same. I can't do anything about the passage of time. So I settle into the age I don't want to be, and after a few months it becomes all right. I've learned that time does indeed bring about a peace. In hindsight, my apprehension about turning six was well-grounded, but that is truly another story. And takes me to my world of intuition that I have no control over and to which I have paid a great deal of respect in my lifetime. I trust my inner feelings. When an event or a change comes along that I don't feel absolutely comfortable with at first, an illness, a new job, a death, the sale of a house, a new priest, the list is endless, I reassure myself that in a few months I'll feel differently, not necessarily better, but differently, because I know I will. Allowing our minds to be fully open to the new circumstances, talking about it to trusted folk, writing about it, there's the opportunity for a shift in perspective and acceptance. And if the event or change is still uncomfortable, then I have to regroup. The platitude time heals 
holds a lot of truth as long as you don't deny your emotions their voice and are honest with yourself. My approach to departure has been constant because I have a firm vision of how I want my relationships to look. The most important components in my life are my family, and I know from watching my parents that if I don't nurture that relationship, I'll end up by myself, not necessarily physically, but emotionally. To that end, much as I love my privacy and alone time, I've always encouraged conversation and time spent with my husband and my children. In the middle of an essay, or while reading an exciting part of my book, when a close family member interrupts me, I put down what I'm doing and give them my full attention. The same with close friends. In fact, I'm pretty good at keeping up with people, and my children are aces at keeping up with me. Oh dear, where does the time go when you're having fun? Gotta run now. I need to get back to my packing and goodness knows what else. Leaving in a couple of days now. We're staying in a hotel for the last night and then on Monday we're off. And we're going to be staying in a hotel in Dallas for a few nights and then we're off to East Texas. It's all excitement around here. I hope you'll be back, same time, same place next week, to hear more about homeschooling life both from me and my guest. Without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, the hard-working staff at Toginet Radio, my guest this week, Theodora Sutcliffe, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Joel, Rosemary, Kathleen, Esme, Millicent, Jane, Olivia, Tina, and oodles of others who are part of my growing audience. Don't forget to stay tuned in all the time to Toginet and catch lots of great shows to glide you through your day. Take care and be safe. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who were willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.